morning. I want to take just a moment, Pastor Rod, to say thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm sorry that you've been ill, but um, it's been a great opportunity to preach the word. I appreciate that. And um, thank you all for listening and for all of your good words after service. The question is, have you ever rubbed elbows with someone important? Maybe someone you would consider a celebrity or famous person. And and there's an example in here from Pastor Rod, but he told me I could use my own. I really don't have a lot, I thought, because I work in preschool. You know, famous people, I'm their famous person. (laughs) But I, I thought about the times I've gone to conferences and had the pleasure of meeting some of the presenters right up close and personal and having lunch with them and just sitting and talking with them. And they're like women of stature less than me, but they carry such great presence with them. And where they go, people listen. And is that not what this is about? There's something about them that makes them stand out from the crowd amongst all of our education staff. So this morning, our scripture comes from Mark's gospel, and here we see a similar thing happening, only on a much more significant scale. Some of the people in Jerusalem instinctively knew that Jesus was an important man, so important that they gave him their praise. But truly, they do not have a clue who they are really dealing with or the prophetic nature of his coming into their city. Listen to the story that Mark tells of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in the highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem, and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. 
When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. I want to focus our attention this morning on three significant elements of this story. Typically on Palm Sunday, churches talk mostly about the parade and the palm branches as Jesus rides into the city. But there are two other important events that have prophetic significance and even seem a little odd in the context of the joyous parade. But in each of these events, Jesus is introducing himself to the people of Jerusalem. The first prophetic event is the triumphal entry. And what we discover is that Jesus takes the initiative in preparing his entry into Jerusalem. His instructions are very precise and each is significant. The disciples are to go get a colt that has never been ridden before. Now, it was not customary for pilgrims coming to the temple to ride. They generally completed the trip on foot. But the Old Testament prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus has the scripture in mind. He is a king. The people are jubilant, and he will enter the city on a note of triumph as he rides in on a donkey. The Roman Christians to whom Mark is writing his gospel were familiar with Caesar riding a prancing horse when he returned from war. After all, he was a conquering hero and he brought warriors and slaves that had been conquered and lots of loot with him. But Jesus riding a young donkey is significant as it meets the ancient provision that an animal devoted to a sacred purpose must be one that has not yet been put to ordinary use. Even more so, it symbolizes a king who comes in dignity and peace, in humility, not pride. At this time, only Jesus knows the messianic significance of his entry. Only later would it be seen for what it was. Despite the respect of the people, there seems to be little awareness that the actual arrival of God's kingdom is upon them and that it is actually drawn from the person of Jesus himself. In many ways, Jesus' actions on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem are hidden. For example, pilgrims were always coming into Jerusalem, and to see people gathering around Jesus was probably no big deal to the authorities. To them, he was just another pilgrim. Which may explain why Jesus enters to such great praise, and then the people just walk away. This whole event was not significant enough to alarm or even attract the attention of those in power. Certainly, the authorities would be concerned if they thought a potential king was coming into town because it would upset the political stability. But Jesus enters the city with a group of pilgrims who then quickly disperse. 
Though the pilgrims who lined the streets were hoping that Jesus would be the Messiah who would save them from the Romans, they certainly are not thinking of his reign as Messiah in the same terms Jesus was. The second prophetic event is Jesus' encounter with a fig tree. If we take verses 12 through 14 all by themselves, they are somewhat difficult to understand. But if we place them in the context of the larger story, the story of the fig tree becomes much clearer. When we read that Jesus said to the tree, no one, may no one ever eat your fruit again, the traditional teaching that seems to have evolved over the years is that Jesus is cursing the fig tree because it isn't bearing fruit. But take a closer look. He never curses the tree at all. Those are Peter's words not the words of Jesus. Jesus states that no one will eat the fruit of the tree. But before we go deeper into the meaning of this story, I want us to notice the only one of Jesus' inner circle that is named in this story. It's Peter, the impetuous disciple who was usually more likely to speak than to listen, to act in haste, and was not always in tune with the depth of understanding that Jesus was trying to convey. And again, as we have seen over the past several weeks, Peter does not disappoint. Verses 20 through 21 tell us, The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree Jesus had cursed, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. What Jesus was really doing here is a symbolic act that makes a prophetic statement. Similar to the symbolic actions of some of the Old Testament prophets who used symbolism to illustrate what God was going to do for or against the nation of Israel. So here, Jesus does the same kind of thing. This event has meaning beyond its face value. For example, Isaiah 20, 2-3, we read, the Lord told Isaiah, Take off the burlap you have been wearing and remove your sandals. Isaiah did as he was told and walked around naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, My servant Isaiah has been walking around naked and barefoot for the last three years. This is a sign, a symbol of the terrible troubles I will bring upon Egypt and Ethiopia. Isaiah isn't just going barefoot for no reason. His being without shoes is a prophetic sign to all those who see him barefoot. In the same way, Jesus, in his action with the fig tree, is showing what will happen to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his followers left Jerusalem after the parade into the city and stayed the night in Bethany, likely with their close friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The next day, they left Bethany and are on their way back to, Jerus to Jerusalem, where Jesus will claim his lordship once and for all. Most likely, the fig tree would be found in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, which was on the way. On the protected side of the Mount of Olives, fig trees can be seen in leaf many times around the end of March or early April. Early green figs will appear before the leaves, but they do not taste very good, nor do people eat them. They do not ripen until June. But looking at this tree, Jesus sees mature leaves and the promise of early fruit. However, 
he knows there will be no fruit. Yes, Jesus is hungry, but his action, like the action of entering Jerusalem and the action of clearing the temple, which we will talk about in a moment, point to a greater, deeper meaning, what will happen to Jerusalem, to the nation of Israel, and to the temple. The prophets frequently spoke of the fig tree as referring to Israel's status before God, representing the fruit of spiritual fulfillment, based on Israel's promise as God's chosen people. But the figs also represented Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant and unfulfilled promises to God. Jeremiah 8.13 declares, I will surely consume them. There will be no more harvest of figs and grapes. Their fruit trees will all die. Whatever I gave them will soon be gone, and I, the Lord, have spoken. Israel had been chosen as God's people and blessed beyond measure, but they had not lived up to their potential. The destruction of the fig tree is associated with judgment. The Old Testament prophet Hosea tells us, I will destroy her grapevines and fig trees, things she claims her lovers gave her. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals will eat the fruit. Here in this context, the fig tree symbolizes Israel in Jesus' day. And what happens to the tree, it withers, is the fate that will happen to Jerusalem. I want to stress that for Jesus, the primary meaning is neither hunger nor disappointment related to the tree or figs themselves. But he is using this occasion to make a prophetic statement. So as the action taken against the fig tree is primarily pointing out the pretense of health, not the lack of fruit, it is pointing out that Israel's hypocrisy is about failing to produce what was promised. Jesus is making the point that leaves are a poor substitute for fruit. The religious community in Israel had style, but no substance. They had a lot of empty rituals and meaningless symbols, and because of their unfaithfulness, they would eventually be given over to the Romans and would suffer greatly under the empire's domination. The third prophetic event in the story is Jesus inspecting the temple. And the point is that Jesus is Lord of the temple, who must inspect its premises to determine whether the purpose intended by God was fulfilled. Jesus would proceed no further than what was called in the court of men or the court of the Gentiles, and his survey provides him with the grounds for action. In verses 15 through 17, we see Jesus enter into the temple, which he surveyed the day before. But we see him entering the temple this day in the context of being the Messiah. Remember, the action in the temple is parallel to the action of riding into to Jerusalem and the action taken against the fig tree. He enters the temple and cleans it out. But Jesus is just not cleaning out the temple because the people are misusing it. More importantly, Jesus' cleaning out of the temple was a prophetic sign that the temple will cease to function. Why? Because in a short time, Jesus will die and be resurrected to life. And Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross is, that one, is effective for all time, past, present, and future. There will no longer be a need for the sacrifices made in the temple anymore. 
Now, generally, in the modern-day church, we in the modern-day church talk about sacred use of a place set aside for worship. And then we hear that Jesus kicked people out because they were buying and selling in a place of worship. That's all true. However, let us be careful how we apply these verses. The place in the temple where all this selling was occurring was in the area where Gentiles would come in to worship. These were people who believed in God but were not of Jewish heritage. And so this part of the temple was known as the court of the Gentiles. Now because the merchants were selling and exchanging money there, there was no place for the Gentiles to worship simply because all the space reserved for them was taken up by these merchants. This would be the equivalent of us placing merchandise to sell here in the worship center, which would then restrict seating for our Sunday morning services. Furthermore, these merchants offered services that were in fact needed by the pilgrims coming to the temple. Many people would travel quite a long distance and would have great difficulty in bringing a sacrificial animal with them. So when they arrived at the temple, they would just buy their sacrifice. Of course, these merchants saw a good thing and apparently were overcharging for the convenience. None of this made Jesus happy because people were being prevented from worshiping by these selfish acts. But still, this is not the primary meaning of these verses. There's an even deeper significance. If we look at the church around the world today, and think about those who follow Jesus, the vast majority are not of Jewish heritage. We are, in fact, Gentiles. So Jesus cleaning out the temple, and specifically the court of the Gentiles, is a two-pronged prophetic symbol. First, by Jesus' actions on the cross, sacrifices in the temple would no longer be needed. He was the Lamb, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of all humankind. And second, the followers of Jesus at this point are most, almost exclusive, exclusively Jewish, but within a few centuries, the followers of Jesus will be predominantly Gentile. As Jesus cleans out the temple, he is prophetically making room for you and for me. The greater point that Jesus is making with his profound actions is that he is shedding light on God's eternal plan for us. Jesus sums up his point at the end of the passage in verses 19 through 25. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you tru the truth. You can say this to the mountain. May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. The disciples are impressed that the fig tree has withered, and when they point it out to Jesus, he ignores their excitement. Instead, he points away from the physical action to the spiritual action. He has already pointed to what he will do. 
Now he points to what we are to do, and that is a spiritual action called faith and prayer. These two always go hand in hand. There is no effective prayer without faith, and there is no real faith without prayer. Jesus has come to be the Messiah, and by his actions he has replaced the sacrifice in the temple and made room for everyone to follow him. We are simply to have faith and pray. We are not, imp- not to be impressed with Jesus. That's not faith. We are to have faith in Jesus, and our prayers will be effective. I want us to note that in verse 23, Jesus says, You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. And the mountain he is referring to is none other than the mountain that Jerusalem sits on. Jesus has taken the mountain where people used to go to worship and figuratively thrown it into the sea because we do not go to a mountain to worship anymore. We now place our faith in Jesus himself. So what's the takeaway for the story, from the story today? There are several. Jesus enters the city as Messiah, and he wants to enter our life as Messiah. He wants to be the Lord of our life, not just one God among many. The people praised him, and we too are to praise him. Today, an overabundance of activity can divert our attention away from our most basic responsibility, and that is to give God our praise and worship. His entry was more than a sign. It was a prophetic message that Jesus is the way to God. The popular thinking today is that there are many ways to God, but Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. As the fig tree withered, so does the importance of Jerusalem as the center of religious life for God's people. And as the temple court is cleared, a way has made a way was made for people of all nations to enter into God's kingdom. The Lord of the temple came, not to, just to restore his temple as a house of prayer, but to reopen the promise that his salvation is for all nations. The actions of Jesus as he enters the city of Jerusalem have tremendous significance. He is claiming his lordship over people, over nature, and over the church. What Jesus sees when he arrives in Jerusalem displeases him. His house, the temple, has become a den of thieves, and he lays the blame squarely at the feet of the religious leaders. And all this purging buys him a great deal of hate. Jesus has undercut the prophets and publicly embarrassed the agents of the high priests. He has already questioned their traditions and repudiated their teachings and condemned their attitudes. But now he has touched them where it hurts, in their pocketbooks. So the forces begin to line up against Jesus, and we are headed toward an arrest and a mockery of a trial and death on a cross. Will you pray with me? God, we stand together today in our need of forgiveness. Something of each of us is recognizable in the Palm Sunday crowds who greeted Jesus on his way to the temple. We share the short-sightedness of their sin. So enable us to turn away from all that separates us from your purposes and dims our eyes and ears to your way. 
Cause your light to shine on us and bless our feeble attempts to be your faithful followers. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.